Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. Today's guest, I believe, is going to be number 385. And if this is new to you, go to batgap. And if you want to see more, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu and you'll find all the previous ones archived in various ways. This show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there's a donate button on every page of the site. My guest today is Mari Perone. Mari, I'm just going to read her bio here and then perhaps stop reading it and speak extemporaneously, but Mari tells us she's delighted that a course of love has granted her a voice in the new dialogue that has opened about who we are as human and divine beings. She feels that the wisdom of the heart, a major focus of a, of a course of love, has at times been missing from the conversation and loves being able to speak for both the heart and the human. A question asked within a course of love is this, doesn't it make sense that the only error possible is that of not being who you are? Mari is called the first creator, excuse me, first receiver of this course that has been given as an extension of what was begun in A Course in Miracles. A Course in Miracles was recorded by Helen Schechtman in the late 60s and early 70s. Helen was called a scribe of the words of Jesus, which since that time have gone out to millions of people all over the world. A Course in Miracles was stated, was stated to be a course in thought reversal and mind training. Within a course of love, which Mari received between 1998 and 2001, Jesus calls Mari its first receiver and says that each person who lets it enter their heart is a receiver as well. It started, its stated purpose is a return to a true identity prior to the time of learning, and it call, calls for learning to end. Mari feels that in a world that has told us that everything we need to know can be known with our minds and or learn from teachers, experts, and gurus, we've often felt discouraged from listening to our hearts or trusting our inner knowing. A Course of Love offers a new way of knowing and invites us to enter dialogue and become creators of the new. Mari lives in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she is a writer and contemplative as well as an engaged mother and grandmother. So welcome, Mari. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. Yeah, I'm glad to meet you, and it's been nice getting to know you over the past week, listening to your recordings and reading your books. And getting my phone calls about, am I doing this right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Working out some technical snafus. Yeah. So what we just uh, revealed in my reading that little thing is mm -hmm. that you kind of channeled this book from Jesus. I know that you yourself said that when you first were exposed to A Course in Miracles, you were a little skeptical as to whether it was really from Jesus or, you know, I'm, I don't know what you might have thought it might have been, but, you know, that's a little bit of a tall order, perhaps. And so, you know, let's help out those who might also be skeptical and, and give a little explanation as to how you be, let's say, say this, how did you become convinced that A Course in Miracles was really from Jesus? And how would you, what would you say to those who might be skeptical that either that book or yours are really from Jesus? Mm, really good question. I think what I know, what convinced me when I was reading A Course in Miracles was a feeling of being known. I was absolutely astounded that what I was reading explained absolutely 
in the, the thinking that's insane was my thinking, you know, so it's talking about how you torture yourself with these thoughts, you know, and, um, and how insane that is. And, um, and I, but it was like, he just knew me. And I thought that had to be a divine knowing for someone to talk to people all over the world and have them feel the same way, to have them feel that known. And there was also something about the words themselves, you know, like I felt it much more with my own course, you know, that entering, but there was like a rhythm and I just fell into that. I never studied a course in miracles. I never joined a group. I think the only um, associated book I read was Marianne Williamson's book because I just read it over and over because it was like when I was reading it, I just felt like I was with Jesus. It was incredible. So that's how I felt I knew. I, I think people will feel that or they won't, you know. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a few short, simple questions that might be the kind of questions a child would ask, okay? Okay. Um, so first of all, who's Jesus? <laughs> um, well, I, uh, you know, I was raised a Catholic mm -hmm. and, you know, I was born in 1955. So when I was young, you know, all the moms were stay at home moms and people only had one car. And it was like the only time we, we really went in the car to go anywhere was to church almost. So every week we'd go to church and in those early days, it was still Latin and it was mysterious. And, and I felt like that mystery was something that moved into me, intrigued me. I mean, it was like I was, so from my very early age, you know, I, I liked going to church and then I went to Catholic school where they told me, you know, Jesus was my brother and my friend. And I began to um, talk to Jesus and just always feel that I had and someone accompanying me who cared about me and loved me. And, and so I think part of the way I see Jesus is based on that and other people will see it differently. But it's, um, you know, the idea of Jesus as God's son who incarnated and lived here as a man. And I think that symbology is very true to what's going on now, that we are being called now to realize that we have that God spark in us and to live that way. And so to have one example life that said, you know, I am both man and God. That feels very important to me. Okay. Second childlike question. Okay. Where does Jesus live? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, where do, uh, you know, any of our deceased loved ones go, you know, and you feel that presence sometimes of a grandmother or, you know, somebody who, especially those who have just recently died, you know, like I know after my dad died, I kept hearing this song, uh, this Beatles song in my head, and I don't know if I can remember it now. Give me a hint and I'll know it. <laughs> um, if there's anything that you want, oh, if there's anything yeah. that you need from to me call to you. on me, from me yeah, from yeah. me to you. And it was like in my head, in my head, in my head until suddenly, you know, and you, it's just like you're wanting it to go away and you're not even listening to it. And then all of a sudden I said, oh my God, that's got to be my because that's just, you know, he wouldn't be the singing Beatles to me, but that would be his message to me. But I mean, I've had so many experiences of feeling 
um, connected and talk to people who, you know, been connected with people who have um, passed on. And and so I, I do believe that there's a field of consciousness and it's not a blob field, you know, it's there are individual consciousness even within the wholeness of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's where Jesus, the man, abides. There's another part of Jesus that in my course is called Christ Consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so. Yeah. Okay. Third question, a little bit less childlike, is so you're you're kind of implying that there's a realm where Jesus resides and presumably other beings reside there also. And you know, we're told when we were kids, well, Jesus lives in heaven and, and so on. So maybe we could call that realm heaven. And that Jesus isn't just sort of hanging out and playing a harp. He's actively in, engaged in the concerns of, of humanity through people mm -hmm. like you and many, many others who, um, you know, who in, invoke him in one way or another or connect with him in one way or another. Is, would you agree with what I just said? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Now, totally unchildlike question. Um, <laughs> NASA tells us that there are probably around 20 billion Earth-like planets in our galaxy, and now over 2 trillion galaxies in the known universe. So if you do the math, that's a lot of places where life potentially exists. Do you, do you feel that Jesus is sort of um, has a local jurisdiction that he's assigned to this planet and takes care of it? Or do you feel that he's kind of some kind of universal spirit that is engaged in, in the welfare of uncountable trillions and quadrillions of, of planets? Well, I believe that the idea of Jesus being the Son of God is, you know, that he's the same as God. And God, I see God as the creator of everything. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, don't um, have any problem with anybody else's way of seeing, but that's my way of seeing it. So, yes, I would certainly see that the whole universe is part of this loving act of a loving creator. Okay. And that Jesus, the, the being, the, the, the entity, the, the emissary of God, is actually um, overseeing and interceding in some way with beings throughout the whole universe? Is that what you're saying? I know this is kind of speculative, but... Yeah. But you know what, when... And, and I, you know... I'm, I'm not sort of giving you a hard time here. It's just that uh, I find that um, astronomy is one of the greatest um, defenses against religious fundamentalists. And I know you're not one of them. You're not a <laughs> fundamentalist. But when they start telling me that Jesus is the only way and, you know, that kind of thing, yeah. I, I, start, yeah. I start kind of giving them a hint as how, how big the universe might actually be. And, uh, and if we start getting into the world at 6,000 years old, I start talking about the speed of light and how the Andromeda <laughs> galaxy is 2 million years away and things like 2 million light right. years away. Right. So I don't know, just to put this in a kind of a cosmic context, you know, of what we're actually talking about here. Now, I believe most spiritual beings, you know, people who are spiritual, call themselves uh -huh. spiritual or religious, but particularly spiritual, really feel that there is that God spark in them, mm -hmm. that they are of the divine and they have... A divine self as well as a human self mm -hmm. and so I don't how does that go with your question <laughs> um, yeah uh, I, I just don't see any problem with if um, with 
you know, attaching that um, godliness that created the universe to, you know, I mean, people attach that to different things as they're growing up, as they're raised, as they are thoughtful, and as they explore other things. And I have no problem with that. It's just, for me, that is, I, w I believe in Jesus as that one, I, as far as I know, and I'm not, I'm not a scholar at all, mm -hmm. so, but as far as I know, no other um, spiritual person was called the Son of God. I think there, there's kind of that, um, and like I say, even if you don't believe it, that symbology that we can be of God here in form, I feel is really important, yeah. especially right now. Sure. Um, but I don't know, um, does it say in the Bible, and if not the Bible, does it say in the Gnostic Gospels or something that we're all sons and daughters of God? Mm -hmm. And so that's not a, a kind of an exclusive title. It, it's something that could be said of anyone, yes? Yes, but until that time, I don't think we understood that. And then, you know, a lot of people still don't understand that, but I think he was the example of that. Yeah. In history. Right. So, um, that, that's all I'm saying. No, that's good. And um, but and how about, I, I don't know to what, I think you've, initially you hadn't, but now you've studied other traditions and, and so on around the world. And, um, you know, there are many beautiful examples of people who are God-conscious saints, you know, and God realized and one with God and spoke very beautifully and wrote beautiful poetry and scriptures and all that stuff. So, I mean... It seems like we all have the potential to be that, and you know we all are that essentially, and have the potential to realize that consciously. And that um, there's nothing exclusive about Jesus. He was just a, pro a profound example of what's possible. Um, do you agree? Or? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, that's kind of, I, I didn't. If I didn't make it sound that way, yes, it's like I think that's the the thing about Jesus that's so universal is that. We are all that. Yeah. We, yeah. And he said, I think he said, you know, all these great things that I do, you'll do even greater things, you know. Yeah. Um, and so he wasn't setting himself up as sort of the, the, you know, the one guy that had access to this sort of realization. He was, I, I, as I understand it, um, mm -hmm. trying to convey that everyone has that potential. <laughs> and still is, you know. And still is, yeah. Yeah, instead of seeing ourselves as limited to who we are in our human form, to see our humanity and our godliness, our divinity combined. Right. Yeah. Okay, good. So I don't mean to give you a grilling here. I just want to kind of lay that foundation of, um, you know, because a lot of people sort of have a, and a lot of spiritual people who are into Eastern spirituality now sort of have a bad taste in their mouth from their religious upbringing, you know, where they were kind of harangued about, you know, that this is the only way. And, that, and there, there have been so many wars and, and, um, and carnage and, uh, behind that idea that uh, just kind of establishing the broad-mindedness of this conversation here. Yes. Yeah. The one right way has, has had a, wreaked a lot of havoc. It has, yeah. Good. So as I gather, the, a chorus of love, I think this is a real beautiful thing that you, you lay out, that in, one, in a sense I'm not a very good person to be interviewing you about this, or a course in people in A Course in Miracles, because I haven't really studied either. But 
you laid out something really interesting about A Course in Miracles that I didn't know, which is that um, it seems to be largely about the mind and tends to dismiss the world as illusion. And um, whereas A Course of Love is heart-oriented, and doesn't emphasize that the world is merely an illusion. Wouldn't wouldn't just sort of brush it off so glibly. Yeah, you want to elaborate a bit on that? Yes, <laughs> it feels so important because I really believe that what is happening now. We're in a new time, and mm-hmm. it's astrology is telling us that, and you know, all kinds of people are telling us that we're in this time. And I believe it is a time of embodying. It's in time of embodying this. And that that is what's going to create a new world. Mm -hmm. uh, So to imagine that the world is anything but holy and anything but real is something that I hope people begin to, you know, a, a, a pattern of thought that maybe people will begin to shake a little bit as we uh, embrace and embody our divinity here on earth. And you know, I have met so many people, almost all of A Course of Love's readers come to it from A Course in Miracles. And I've had people tell me stories that are, I mean, of just shutting down because of that idea of the illusion. You know, a woman told me she hadn't cried over a sunset in years because she believed now that was an illusion. Yeah. And one man even told me he didn't name his child because the child in form was just an illusion. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but he told me that. And, should, you know, so. Um, should just name them illusion. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so there was a, there were certain extremes that mm-hmm. that idea had people going to, and what course of love does, which I think is particularly important for those from A Course in Miracles, is bring that back. But actually, Course in Miracles, in my readings of it, and like I say, I'm no scholar, I just read it, I didn't study it, but I read it many times, and I never got that. I never got that sense. And I I think a lot of interpretations and popularizations have done that more so than the actual book. And if I had a good memory, I could tell you many passages, but I don't. But there are many passages in A Course in Miracles where creation is spoken of, this world is spoken of as beautiful. Yeah. And so. (laughs) The way I have come to terms with that whole world is illusion point is that um, it's illusion in the sense that we're not seeing it aright. You know, we're not seeing it as it really, in, in its full glory. I mean, even science will tell you, you look at anything and, you know, what you're not really seeing what's actually there. And you know, science has given us tools to see more deeply into what, what we're actually looking at. And, um, you know, it's a whole other world that we're not aware of, just sort of glancing superficially. Um, so in the same, by the same token, um, you know, there's so much more to be pr- appreciated uh, of the world that, that is all around us. And um, if we're just sort of perceiving it superficially, like through a glass darkly, as, as the Bible says, then we're, you know, in a sense, that's illusion, because we're not really seeing the full reality of it. 
Yes. And this isn't exactly said in this language anywhere, but what I take from A Course of Love and the way it talks about A Course in Miracles in A Course of Love is that the ego's world was the illusion. The ego's So it's exactly world. what you're saying, you know, the perception that we had of the world and ourselves, that we perceived ourselves as separate from everyone else, as alone, as having all these reasons to be fearful, that created our perception of a fearful, scary world. Yeah. So when you see the world with love and you see yourself with love, that's a really huge part, everything changes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's that saying, life sucks, then you die. Um, <laughs> you know, and that's, you know, there are other perspectives that are a lot more uh, encouraging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, really, I have the sense of this being, I mean, I think humanity is, in a certain sense, like the last frontier, you know, that we have, we are a consciousness that grew out of crea creation, and I, we can have such joy, and we can, we are creators ourselves, and yeah. as we begin to really experience the fullness of who we are, what A Course of Love says is we can create the new, and I am very much looking forward to being part of creating the new. Yeah, well, you, you don't have to look forward to it because you're already doing it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, the other thought that occurred to me a minute ago when we were talking about illusion is that, um, you know, if God is really omnipresent, as we're told, and, um, and as there's evidence for, if you actually look closely at the marvelous intelligence in every little iota of, yeah. cre of creation, then, you know, the world is divine because it's God. You know, it's, it's, we're looking at it. We're, you know, yes. God, God is hiding in plain sight, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. And how can God be in the smallest flea and not in human beings? Yeah, and, yeah. and he is in the smallest flea. Look at a flea yeah. under a microscope and look what a, a miracle of, of creative intelligence that is. You know, I'm learning all this science by uh, National Geographic for Children and <laughs> Ranger Rick. <laughs> it's like, it's great because it's, it's not so complicated that I can't understand it, you yeah. know, and I... And I just love it. I love reading those things. Yeah. With grandchildren. Irene just made a noise because we're dealing with flea problems on our dogs right now. And I, maybe she's questioning that then. <laughs> I, think it, I think it was Woody Allen that said that God is omnipresent except for certain parts of New Jersey. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, one thing I found really cool about your whole thing is... Um, and you may not know this, but there are a number of spiritual teachers and traditions that actually delineate a progression from head to heart to gut in terms of awakening. Adyashanti does, uses those three terms. Um, mm -hmm. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi talked that way, he talked about a sort of a realization of the self on, on the, the, wake, the level of the mind where you know, you realize the, the true nature of the self, but the world is regarded as illusion. And then the heart doesn't like that because the heart doesn't like separation. And so the heart begins to bridge the gulf and eventually creates a sort of unification uh, between self and, and world in, in which one appreciates the sort of divine or celestial quality of the world. And then he said that there's another stage which might correspond to Adyashanti's gut stage where true union takes place. So if Course in Miracles is mind and Course of Love is heart, maybe you're actually tracking that same progression that these other teachers and traditions have discussed. Certainly possible, yeah. One of the main themes of A Course of Love is it starts with, you know, really changing the focus from head to heart. 
because it basically said the ego made off with everything you learned, you know, mm -hmm. and so we come to the heart so that that doesn't happen. But then as we go on, it talks about wholeheartedness. It's one of the main themes so that we unify ourselves from within first. We unify mind and heart. Mm -hmm. So it's not heart. It's not a separation. Right. And so we do, we become in union within and that's like the key that gets us to being able to be more and more in union outside of ourselves with mm -hmm. a, in relationship with nature with our fellow human beings with god yeah yeah in your own experience in your own life um did you see this kind of progression like when you were studying a course in love a course a course in miracles i mean did you sort of realize its potential to a significant degree experientially and perhaps even you know walk around regarding the world as illusion and all and then have a, a kind of a dissatisfaction like there must be more or um no <laughs> <laughs> um i just loved it i just fell into it and i loved it and this happened to me with a course of miracles and a course of love which has made it hard for me sometimes to talk about or i think it's going to be hard to talk about and i usually seem to do okay but i could never really remember it mm. and i have heard this now from many people about a course of love i don't know so much about a course of miracles but that it comes into you and you have this sense of you know it you got it mm -hmm. and then it's gone yeah. you know so um but no, I didn't. Um, I didn't feel. I, now I forgot your question, but <laughs> but, but I, I don't think I felt the way you're you're talking about. Okay, well, okay. on this you got it. It's gone point. I mean, when you're studying a course in miracles, you're reading a book, right? Or maybe you're in a study group with other people and you're discussing it, and and that's kind of somewhat on the level of intellect. It would seem to me, you're, you know, you're taking in concepts and you're pondering them and so on. And, um, you know, spiritual realization is usually regarded as being something more visceral, more fundamental, more experiential. Like if you, if you bite into an apple, you're not conceptualizing the experience of the taste. You don't even have to know it's an apple. You could give it to somebody in Africa that's never seen an apple and it, they'd have that experience of the taste. So, you know, there are scriptures and books and all kinds of things which offer us things in, in concepts and words. And then there's the experience that those things are pointing to. Like Zen says, don't mistake the finger pointing at the moon for the moon. It's just a pointer. So how does a course in miracles or a course of love enable one to move from taking in words and concepts to actually having a, a living experience that you're going to be having whether or not you're entertaining those concepts? Well, you know, I think I didn't feel that way with The Course in Miracles because I didn't study it, per se. I just kept reading it, cover seven, to cover. Seven times. Yeah. Seven times. <laughs> and I didn't go to groups, and I didn't read the other teachers. So mm. it was an experience for me. Mm. I don't know how you feel about reading, but for me, reading is an experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am in love. You know, I fall in love, like with Thomas Merton or, you know, Rollo May. Or, you know, I just, I fall in love with these people who I read, and they're my the books are like my best friends and and so they're working in me that's the way i see it they're working in me and they and i reread books that i really like because of that i'll just i'll go over them again and there's something that they're but i i don't necessarily you know i don't study it i don't stop to figure it out it's just i know it's speaking to me 
And then maybe at some point it informs an insight that I have or a growth within me, but it's not necessarily linked, which I think is one of the things, my favorite thing about A Course of Love is that it's talking about the end of learning. Mm -hmm. So it's like anything that, what I have found is that anything that you are trying to learn keeps you from this absolute engagement that it is when you are in a in an inner place when you are accepting these things into an inner place that's an experience and so how do you share uh, you know without the teaching and learning model and Je what jesus says at the end of a course of love is you share through dialogue you share through being who we are and i always think of the um do you, do you remember the book Aquarian Conspiracy? Yeah, I remember it. I don't know if I ever read it. Just vaguely. Well, I had it for years, too, and didn't read it. And then when I read it, I was like, it made me, it was like, it was that time, I, I believe, of uh, maybe 60s when people here were really finding, you know, spirituality for the first time. And they were, uh, what uh, was being done was they were sort of collecting these and everybody was just like agog and excited about what was happening and that excitement was so wonderful to me and I I believe that's what happens it's like you get something you get something that calls you to your spiritual path mm -hmm. something happens inside of you well that's the begin that's you're being touched by not by you know not intellectually, it's like your heart feeling a calling to a particular thing. And then if, but if you then go and try to study the way, I think a lot of people get trapped in that they're gonna, they've got an arrow and they're gonna shoot it towards achieving that goal and it becomes something else. Mm -hmm. it's, and it's about the way rather than what they started out to have, you know? And, and certainly many people are, you know, are different than I am. And so uh, are really finding much value in the different, you know, teachings and stuff. But I really love the idea of letting us remove ourselves from that way of learning. Because I mean, we're taught our whole lives. We're taught our whole lives that we don't know enough. We don't know enough to whatever it is, fill in the blank. And so by the time we're mature, you know, we're listening to people telling us how to pray and how to parent and how to, you know, run our lives. And what a spirituality of the heart gives back is our sovereign right to know. It says, you know, you can know, you can remember what you don't know. That's precious to me. Yeah. And I think that's congruent with what a lot of spiritual teachers have said. Like you say, um, you know, a world that has taught us that everything we need to know can be known with our minds and or learned from teachers, experts, and gurus. Uh, we've often felt discouraged from listening to our hearts or trusting our inner knowing. But I think that any, any teacher or guru worth his or her salt is saying, hey, I'm giving you some pointers here, but you've got to discover this within yourself to really experience it. And I don't want mm -hmm. you to just hang on my words. I want you to explore within and and see whether this is true in your own experience of course i'm not saying the teachers are doing anything wrong but it's like the approach you know it yeah so you're, i'm going to become awakened i'm going to become enlightened and there's this sort of 
you know, like I say, like if you are trying to achieve something, you almost always, in the, at the spirit level, you fail. You know, it's not like to me, you know, people talk about awakening. And I think my most awake place is when I first open my eyes in the morning and I often have a really wonderful insight just waiting for me there. It's like it's wakeful, but not in our usual terms of wakeful. Yeah. You know, so. Well, that's actually that's something that's actually discussed in spiritual literature, that there's a sort of a gap between major states of consciousness and you can have intuitive or deep insightful experiences as you go through that transitional gap period and uh, and they talk about expanding the gap till uh, one's whole life is lived in that gap even though you're going through the cycle of waking dreaming and sleeping you you can, can continually consciously reside in what they call teria or fourth state that lies beneath or is fundamental to all the changing states Cool. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I don't you know know that much about these things, and uh, but I do you know I follow my instinct in a way, and um, you know I had my husband build me this cabin out behind our yard, and that you know I just I get up in the morning and I spend my first hours there, mm -hmm. and you know I I don't do well in busyness and. Um, you know, trying to take things in mentally now is a—it's just a distraction. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. No, I, I think you're doing great, um, and I, I don't think you could have done this whole course of love, uh, channeled it if you had been all caught up in your mind. You wouldn't have been a fit receptacle yeah. for it. Yes, there was one story I can tell you about. Uh, you know, when I first started, there weren't chapters, and I had gone through what became the first 19 chapters. And by this time, you know, I was doing it every day that any time I could be alone, mm -hmm. I would go and I would work on it. And then on Sundays, I would share it. So it was being shared all along. And uh, but anyway, so one day I go to my computer and I don't hear anything and I don't hear anything. And eventually what I heard was you can't go on with your thinking mind. Those were the first words Jesus spoke to me personally. Mm. Was you can't go on to your, you can't go on with your thinking mind, because when I when a course of love began, it just began, and it was those words that began a course that were the first words I heard. Um, but this, you can't go on with your thinking mind, and I was paused for several months that were absolutely horrible for me. I was, I felt very tortured in that time. I couldn't figure out what I was doing, you know, that yeah. how do I still have any mind left, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, but anyway, then uh, what follows that is the most beautiful chapter of the course called The Embrace. It, almost everyone finds that that's the most beautiful chapter. When he came back to me, he said, you know, now you are entering the embrace, the embrace of love. And it's just, it's a very poetic chapter. And it's the first time he speaks of uh, the loss of the ego. He says, um, there's no longer any eye of the ego. And so there's this progression of, from that point on more and more to, because it kind of begins talking to the ego, but, but by uh, halfway through, he says right out the ego's gone and you have to accept this because if you don't accept that the ego is gone you're going to have these two selves you know hmm. you don't want that you don't want to stay divided so. 
so if he, he says the ego is gone, but what if the ego isn't gone? I mean, what if, a, what if a person's ego is very much intact? And we probably ought to define ego in the course of answering that question, because yeah. there are a lot of definitions. Um, well, my favorite is it's who you think you are, mm -hmm. or it's the inner teacher who's always telling you what's right and wrong and judging and all of that, making you feel guilty, or um, all the fictions that you tell yourself, the things that aren't true, those kind of things are are the way I describe it. Um, and, you know, there's a, um, I've had people ask me that question. Like, how can you, how can it be said that you have left the ego behind just by reading a book? And I said, well, if you've just read the book, you probably haven't. So what Jesus is saying is there's something that happens, that if you've let this enter your heart, if you've let it come into you. And it, it's probably the biggest thing that I felt is the difference with um, receiving the words of Jesus was it was impossible to stand apart. It was impossible to stand apart from them. And I've, as people um, read and feel that, I do believe that they lose that ego self. And the Course's definition is is more like the self who believe it's separate and alone. So it, it, you really have, couldn't have taken in a course of love and still believe that you're separate and alone. Mm. You know? If you've really taken it in. Yeah. 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 Um, there's more questions I could ask you here now, but I think let's, let's take a step back because I've heard your history many times having listened to a number of your interviews and so on, but people listening to this, unless they're already a follower of yours or you know, a reader of yours, haven't don't know much about you in that sense. So it's kind of interesting to trace back how you got started on this whole thing. You were, you were an administrator at the university, and then you had these two friends, and one of, them, one of the friends got, they both got pregnant. And why don't you take up that story just to sort of bring us up to speed on how you ended up doing this. Sure. Uh, it's, um, well, as you said, I was working at the University of Minnesota and these two women that I worked with became pregnant within days of each other. So they were due at the same time. But then one of them had a healthy boy and one of them had a baby girl named Grace who died when she was five weeks old. And it was that experience, we were already close but in more of a normal friend way. But when Mary lost her baby we were just existing in this, uh, you know, we were three women working together. We had this room, you know, where we were together. And uh, there was just this tenderness, a sort of palpable tenderness that we were exuding just, you know, to be together in that time of loss for Mary and, um, and just trying to be, or not even trying to be, you know, you just become gentle in a situation like that. And so I, I believe that that began it. But then as Mary began to have these questions, you know, about her baby's death and where do we go and what is, you know, why would this happen to a baby? We all began to explore spirituality and in our different ways. Like I was reading Joseph Campbell and um, I can't really remember, but we would all, then we would, you know, we'd go to work in the morning and we'd bring these things that we were reading or feeling or the dreams that we were having back to the table. And we would spend our first little bit of time in the morning talking and began to find out that 
we were having very amazingly similar insights and even at times experiences. And so um, that reading led me to pick up a book. I can remember it so clearly. I was at the University of Minnesota's bookstore and I bought several books and I got attracted to a cover of a book that was that was called Ask Your Angel. And I normally wouldn't go in for anything like that. But anyway, I bought that book and I kind of regretted it. And But I started to read it and it said that you could talk to your angel. And um, that was my first experience of hearing beyond my senses, an angel piece. And I was in the basement of my hundred-year-old home and uh, I wrote this little note to the angel piece I keep a journal I always have kept journals you know so I was writing in my journal and said you know will you speak to me and I heard the words smell the sweetness mm. and a smell like lilies wafted over me which could come from nowhere in my old basement which smelled very musty and uh, and it's worth noting that you weren't too far from the cat box yes <laughs> the, I was the, the litter that. box <laughs> <laughs> so you heard that in the other i heard that, that i'll yeah. say that again yeah uh, i was i was close to the litter box so that was the beginning for me and i was kind of bowled over and and i was really i mean i know people um people back then particularly thought this was just a great thing you know but i was almost a little embarrassed by it you know it's like i i don't know if i had really given it thought if i would have tried you know if i would have thought it was going to come through i just i don't know it was like this very unexpected thing that happened to me and then um you know there were many then instances from then on where uh, the knowing that I came to with this angel was pretty miraculous and it helped people and uh, it it expanded my way of knowing. And, uh, and so that story was published and just after it had been published, I had the dream that called me to A Course of Love. And the dream was you can no longer sell your mind for money. Your mind belongs to God. And I struggled with that for you know, many months, just sort of trying to dismiss it. And uh, it wouldn't, wasn't easily dismissed. And then I approached my husband about it. I didn't tell him I wanted to work for God because um, I had just published these books. And so I said, you know, it would be a good time for me to uh, expand, you know, to do more writing. And so I, he agreed that I could leave, and I gave my notice and left in at the end of March. So this I had think been you, I think you said you were getting to the point where you, you couldn't work anyway because your mind wouldn't work anymore, and in, in that so in that job true. it wouldn't like it wouldn't do what it was supposed to do. Honestly, it felt like a biblical affliction. I just I'd always been a really good worker and really prided myself on my work and. It was like I couldn't do it anymore. I kind of got forced. You're right. I got forced. Yeah. I was trying to make the the, the story a little bit sh shorter for those. That's okay. I think that's a significant point, actually. You know. You? Yeah, I do. And I've had things like that too. But I, it's sort of like, you know, if if we're there's a saying. How is it? Um, for the wise, only an indication is necessary. And mm. we're not all that wise, some of us. And and it's kind of like. All right, an indication doesn't do it. Let's give you a little bit of a nudge. Okay, a nudge doesn't do it. How about a good <laughs> swift kick in the pants? You know. 
I know. I tried going down in my hours. I tried bringing my work home. I mean, I tried so many different things because I had these great friends at work and I, of course, was making money and we're a working class family. And uh, but it turned out I really had to leave, you know. Yeah. And then I didn't know what my work for God was. I never once in a million years dreamed it would be a course in mir a new course in miracles, which is how it was put to me when it came. I had, I had no, no thought like that even ever entered my mind. Yeah, you said you're going talking to priests and like, what am I supposed to do for God and you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, I didn't tell them. I was, you know, I mean, to tell anybody that except for your close spiritual friends that God wants you to work for, you know, it sounds so insane and. Uh, so I just went to my priest and kind of said, you know, I what can was I do? ready for something, you know, mm -hmm. and I ended up teaching CCD religion for a year. But I also was introduced from that visit to Centering Prayer, which mm -hmm. I practice. And I know you had Thomas Keating on, which I is did. wonderful. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you look back, that's such a fun thing. You know, so for now, for me, it's been almost 20 years. You know, it's, it was 1998 when, of course, began to come, so 18 years. And uh, when I look back, I, you can really begin to see everything. Yeah. You know, how it all fit together and how it made what happened happen, you know. Yeah. That you couldn't see at the time. It feels like you're doing the stupidest thing in the world in a certain sense. And then, you know. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? It's kind of, you, you, you gain trust in divine guidance because if in retrospect you can see how it works yes yeah yes so uh, okay so you quit your job and you went through a, a kind of a doldrums period where you weren't quite sure what you're going to do for god and all that and you were, you know the money was running out and and this and that and so how did the course of love finally kick in and what what was the final impetus to get that going it's so funny because I've been trying to find some of my old journals from that time because, uh, you know, to kind of put myself back there. And I did find, you know, the computers and everything have changed so much, but I found this one, um, you know, type journal entry, like 50 pages from the month before A Course of Love came. And I really, I was so at the end of my rope, my husband had lost his job and I was feeling like I was going to have to go get a job. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to do that because I felt like that would be, you know, giving up on this idea. And I, so I did a couple things. I returned to A Course in Miracles, which was one of them. I put it away for a while and I opened it up and my eyes opened. I, it was in the back, the t manual for teachers, which was always kind of my favorite part and my eyes fell on the words help us here so that was very comforting to me and then um, I had also spent some of my time during my days off going to church again it was sort of my idea of having uh, uh, I'd like to get up early and I would go to the 645 mass which was very short and me and some old ladies and uh, so I wrote about that in this journal that the two days before I heard about A Course of Love's coming, there was this gospel about the women, woman with two copper coins. And the message was, you know, she had to have total trust in God. You know, it wasn't just giving what she could afford. It was having this total trust. And then the next day, this one I hadn't remembered, on the actual day that I heard about it was um, the 
the sermon was about endurance and how you, you need to wait patiently. I mean, it was just like they were speaking to me, you know? And so on that day, it was the 25th of November, and I got that thing about in, endurance after getting trust the day before. So I'm thinking, okay, you know, I can hang on a while longer. And it was my friend uh, Mary Love's birthday. And Mary Love was the mom of the baby Grace who had died. And she is still my soul sister friend. Yeah, I met her a little while ago. Yes, yeah. you did. She's helped me with technology. Thank God she's uh -huh. good at that. Uh, so she came over for her birthday and we were talking just about, first about, you know, it was November 25th. We were talking about normal things, you know, or ordinary Thanksgiving, Christmas, stuff like that. And then we began to talk with more depth and eventually about our dreams. And she told me she had just had a dream in which she saw a new course in miracles. And that was when I began to take in the idea that this was what had been trying to get through to me, was because of her sharing that dream. And then on November, so that was November 25th, on December 1st, I was, I was ready. Yeah. And I sat down, and the rest is history, as they say. Did you sit but down it, knowing that you were about to describe a course of love, or did you just kind of you were just sitting there, and all of a sudden you heard a voice? Well, after Mary left that day, actually, in my journaling, and I'd had this happen with the angel piece, where I would have a voice come in when I was journaling, mm -hmm. and I heard uh, this was an announcement made to you this day that. You know, and it was very short. It was like three sentences. This was the announcement made to you this day, a course in miracles, a new course, something like that, a new course in miracles. Um, and so then I, I knew, I knew it was coming, but I was very doubtful in a certain way because I thought to myself, who would want a new course in miracles? You know, it was like, it, it was, uh, yeah. I mean, it had meant so much to me, and I knew how how uh, incredibly uh, devoted to it people all over the world were. And I knew Helen took seven years. I'd read her story in A Journey Without Distance, and so I thought, what am I letting myself in for, and who's going to want it when I'm done? <laughs> mm. So I kind of went through those things with my, which my humanity was considering, me and my humanity was thinking about, but I knew, you know, even as I'm thinking about it, I knew I was gonna do it if that's what it was. And and so on this day, on December 1st, which was interestingly, um, in terms of the church, it was a, the beginning of Advent, the time of the coming of Christ. And so, you know, we get the symbols that match us, you know, so I was getting these symbols that matched me. Um, and I waited a very short time, and there were those big old computers then, you know, and uh, the cursor seemed to blink so much more than now, and and it wasn't long at all. And um, I heard the words, this is a course in miracles. It is a required course. And I knew it was Jesus, and I fell to my knees, and it was very uh, powerful. And the best way I've known to describe it is I couldn't stand apart from it. It was in me. And that is a powerful thing. Uh, and when it's direct, it's more powerful than like when something comes in you by reading. And it was a powerful thing. And then, uh, you know, I got back in my chair and it began. Hmm. And it was like hearing thoughts I wasn't thinking. 
Um, like it wasn't an audible voice. It wasn't a male voice. It was just like these thoughts were coming and I would type them. And I would, um, you know, it's called receiving in A Course of Love. Jesus calls me the first receiver. And um, receiving isn't passive. You know, I've had a lot of people think that that's a passive thing. It's not passive. It's a very um, intense, attentive sort of listening. And, um, you know, if I can kind of show, you know, it's almost like, you know, like I would quiver between things, you know, with this, this coming on, you know, like it was almost there. And, um, you know, it doesn't sound like much of an experience, but it was a great experience. And I would at times find myself, you know, rocking. I would suddenly, you know, I would have been typing for a while and all of a sudden I realize I'm, I'm like this and I'm, I'm rocking this and my heart is beating really strong and I can feel it in my ear. You know, there aren't a whole lot of exciting things to say about, you know, typing, <laughs> of course, but you know, these are some of the ones that alerted me and also that, you know, that complete cessation of time, you know, I mean, I, and I would forget to eat. I actually became sick because I forgot to eat. And um, so there were these different, you know, manifestations of the state of being so absorbed yeah you know. that's very I think it's a very genuine experience and you're obviously a very sincere person and it's not without precedent I mean most of the a good portion of the world's revered books and scriptures were cognized in one way or another and um, almost we could say channeled and not only spiritual things I mean people like Mozart he would just cognize a whole symphony in a flash and then he would have to take many, many hours writing it down, but he had the whole thing in one nutshell, you know, yes. that it just would come to him as an inspiration. Um, and I very much, I don't, it doesn't matter what I believe, but I, for, for, the, for what it's worth, I, I, you know, I very much believe that there are these sort of different strata of creation and, and various intelligences residing on various levels. And, you know, we may not be aware of them, but they may be aware of us and that they may actually be playing some kind of role in helping us not blow ourselves to bits and and certain people are receptive enough to be go-betweens you know yes. yeah yes yes I think it's um, for me you know when people call me a channeler or a scribe I mean I consider what I have done closer to mysticism mm -hmm. I you know to that sort of state of being and uh, and also because I always wanted to be a writer, you know, I didn't have ambitions that were other than writing. And, uh, and I think you're a good so writer. I mean, I've read you know, a lot of your stuff now. And it's very well written. So obviously, if you couldn't write to save your life, you wouldn't have been a very, very, really a suitable person to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. But, you know, it's... Um, I think, you know, like the works of the mystics, it's like they... They got absorbed in this experience and then they try to share it yeah you know and that trying to share it is usually is is very often done in writing yeah yeah, sure. so, yeah. Um, and a lot of you know again a lot of the world's great epic spiritual tradition texts like the Mahabharata and the Ramayana were both just sort of cognized one by Veda Vyasa one by Valmiki and, and they just wrote the whole thing down 
And, but they, are suppo- they supposedly represent real events that these guys were able to sort of tune into and cognize. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there are probably hundreds of, of examples of this thing happening throughout the ages, and so there's no reason why it should be any less valid or significant in, in our own contemporary time. I think so, too. Yeah. Yes. All right, so we've talked for an hour about, you know, some philosophical points and about your history and everything leading up to A Course of Love. Um, And we've alluded a little bit to what the emphasis of The Course of Love is as opposed to The Course in Miracles. Um, But it's 700 pages long, and uh, I'm sure we haven't done justice to it. So um, do you think it would be a, a good idea for us to spend a good portion of the remainder of our time laying out what the course of love has to offer, what, what it's all about. Um, how about if I tell you what I love about it? Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's certain things about it that I love more than others, you know, <laughs> as is true for all of us, you uh-huh. know, but uh, the wholeheartedness was a big one. And yeah. uh, I have a feeling with that of, you know, more down to earth than a lot of things. And of course, you know, back in 2001, when this first came out, nobody was talking about love. You know, it was all more um, Eastern and it was mindful and it was, um, I don't know, this was very unusual. You know, now um, I just, I I like people like uh, Brene Brown who talks about um, wholeheartedness and authenticity. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's got this, these certain things that have a flavor of bringing it back to the person. And and that's one, I believe, wholeheartedness is um, that combining of, of everything. And uh, one of my favorite quotes from A Course is, be true to love and you can't fail to be true to yourself. And you could say it the other way around, be true to yourself and you can't fail to be true to love one thing that I, I didn't mention yet is that when A Course of Love was done, Jesus called me to be a companion. He said, I asked him, and I when I would, I always sort of wished he would give me um, practical answers, about, you know, especially when I was done with the book, you know, I thought maybe he'd say what to do with it, but he said, be a companion to those willing to leave hell behind. And I had trouble with that for a long time until I began to see hell as not being who you are. I think that's the hellish part of life. So, you know, be a companion to those willing to be who they are, who they truly are, you know? Yeah. So who are we truly? Is it something that can be described? You know, I'm really fascinated by our humanity. It's like this doesn't show up as the same thing in everyone. It's, you know, the divine as showing up as Mari, you know, and the divine showing up as Rick. So it's as we go on in the books, in the treatises, there's a treatise on the personal self where we begin to hear a little bit more about who we are in our humanity and you know Jesus says I love your your hair your eyes the shape of your skull you know it's this this bringing back of the love and of our tender hearts there's a whole chapter in 
on tenderness, on the time of tenderness. So there's a great range of acceptance of feelings and most of them are of the you know, uh, gentle and loving feelings. But as we progress and move into the dialogue, so there's just like a demarcation line between, I see it, and partially because it was one of the other times I was given a directive while I was receiving. So there is a course of love. And then there's the treatises, which have four treatises, a treatise on the art of thought, a treatise on the nature of unity and its recognition, a treatise on the personal self, and then a treatise on the new. And so when we get to it, when we were coming in between a treatise on the personal self and a treatise on the new, Jesus said I had to quit everything that I was doing in terms of I was, you know, working on editing then of the what I'd already received. I was meeting with the Course of Love group already. It started right away. Um, and I had to leave that behind to be totally in the new. And so there's this whole, there's this, what Jesus calls the new is very undefinable, you know, and it, it's just, but it's uh, sort of moving us from the concentration before, which is really about getting rid of the old, which is like, you know, it's like scraping paint to get rid of all the things that we've been conditioned to our whole lives. And then as you move to the new, it's more like putting on the new paint and just, you know, you're getting fresher. So that is, um, and I just fell in love. That was my favorite um, part of the book. Most of the time it is. Uh, but it talks about the beginning of creating a new world and how that future is yet to be predicted. That there is no, um, there's no real plan for this as we're going into a new time. It talked about the people being born into Christ consciousness a new sort of consciousness um, that uh, they wanted to learn directly. You know, so this was all about this movement to being in very direct contact and knowing the divine in us as us. So, um, so now instead of telling you the parts I, I really loved about those, I've, I've just kind of given it a, a, a quick one. And then, the, but the dialogues, I loved all of the dialogues. I know in that uh, journal. In some of my journal entries, I found things saying, "Well, I didn't really get it until uh, until the dialogues. I was working too hard. You know, it was like I was there was this, and but once it got to the dialogues, it was like everything um, opened up. And it's what happens with dialogue. You know, the sense of uh, being in communication and." You know, like you and I are in communication. There's more of that sense with everything that that comes in the dialogues, and um, and also there becomes a greater acceptance of all of our humanity, even things, even feeling things that we don't think we ought to feel. You know, we've been so burdened by this thought that, you know, we are these uh, thoughts and teachings. Um, for instance, here's one I can give you. Um, I I still get nervous public speaking. That's not my forte. Um, and so the old idea of ego is that if if you're nervous, you still have an ego. Okay. So I've been told these things, you know, over many years. And people, have, I mean, very tender-hearted people have been told that's your ego because they're anxious. 
any feeling almost that wasn't bland and banal was the ego in those communities. And so what I am very excited about when we're in the dialogues is this, this acceptance of um, even feelings like anger. You know, it's like we don't have to have an ego or a false self or not know that we're in union. Um, that feeling anger doesn't mean that we have fallen out of anything. It means that usually for me, it means I have not been true to myself. That's usually when I get angry. I haven't been true to myself. And so, but anyway, um, I, what I love about it is because I knew so many people who'd experienced so much pain with the, the old way of talking about it. Yeah. I think what you're alluding to here, and I think you address it in some of your writings, is there's a tendency in, I don't know about it, maybe A Course in Miracles, also in the sort of Neo-Advaita area, to dismiss all this human stuff, you know, like feelings, as, um, as illusory and as not worthy of our attention or consideration. And it can end up in a rather cold-heartedness. Oh, you know, your, your baby died, meh just an illusion the baby didn't exist anyway or you know the baby's in a better place or whatever without really engaging in the human feelings that would naturally accompany such such an event and um, you know and there's there's a lot of teachings which emphasize over and over and over again that you know there really is no you're not a person there is no person you know the, the sense that there that there is a person is, is part of the ignorance you know as a friend of mine is fond of saying Francis Bennett I don't know if you've watched any of his interviews of course you're a person you know you're, you're not just only a person there's more to yes. you, more to you than it's like saying to a wave of course you're a wave you know there you are you're just not only a wave you're also this ocean <laughs> yeah. there's a big there's a deeper broader dimension but it doesn't that, that broader dimension doesn't negate the individual dimension in fact there's a whole thing we could go into about the personal and impersonal aspects of god even god has a personal aspect as well as an impersonal aspect yeah Yes. Yeah. So I just felt those were the things that were most in need of being said. You know, the acceptance of feelings, the acceptance of our personhood. And there's the wonderful, wonderful sections on creativity. He uses creativity to, to talk about some things, but it's like inviting back, you know, our, and I, I think creative, creativity and godliness, creativity and divinity, creativity and soulfulness, you know, they all go together so much. And uh, so it's great uh, credence given to our, uh, our ability to be creative and to be creators. And uh, there's a wonderful, wonderful section on, um, very short, but about the way of Mary. And so the feminine, I mean, I really think the whole of A Course of Love is uh, leading into the feminine, feminine energies and the idea uh, of Mary comes in here with Mary having birthed Jesus and that because we're doing this birthing, now, we're doing this birthing of the new, we're birthing ourselves anew, we're birthing a new time and I mean, I'm excited to be part of this time. And, uh, <clears throat> but it's an, so this idea of Mary gives us an incarnational side of things that what, and that other example of what we're here to do. We're here to birth the, the divine into the world. Mm. 
and that also the way of Mary. I'm sorry. I'm probably being terribly uh, an ungood interviewing now. I'm jumping around too much. But That's right. The the way of Mary also addresses those who aren't called to do, and I don't think it's only it addresses those, what those who aren't called to do. Uh-huh. You know how people can feel like if they don't have a calling, if they don't have some particular thing to do, and they feel really bad about that, you know, and they're kind of always waiting for it. And and a way of Mary accepts those who are not called to do. And there's a, um, you know, like the old anchoresses in the women were anchoresses back in uh, Christianity and mystical, it, it was sort of a mystical state, but uh, we're told that those are the way of Mary anchor this new reality. And, and I believe that that what is happening as we begin to get this influx is more, it's almost like, to me, a collaboration. We're collaborating with the divine to create the new now. And it's different. You know, it's not, my sister doesn't understand this. You know, there are, you're like, you are. Jesus calls us forerunners of the new. We are forerunners of the new. And it can be a difficult position to be in. But as we actually see that we're creating new states of being so as i received a course of love i i created a new state of being in myself and we do that We, we create these new states of being and then we anchor them in the world so what somebody said was reality is no longer our reality we have that create that reality yeah uh I often feel in my own life that it's like, I don't know, just, this metaphor just came to mind, but like when you paint, if you're painting a wall, you, you have to dip the roller or the brush in the paint and then you apply it to the wall and after a while it runs out of paint and so you dip it again and you apply it again. I, I kind of feel like that's how my days go. You know, I, I, I happen to have a meditation practice, but there's other ways people can do this, but I always feel like I'm just getting infused with sort of the divine energy, if you want to call it that, and then spend my day applying it in some way, you know, mm-hmm. and then get another infusion and then apply it. I don't know. Do you like that metaphor? It's a, does that Absolutely. sort of fit, fit in what you experience? Absolutely. Yes, yeah. I do. Like you spend your time in the cabin in the morning, you know, and then I'm sure you derive deep sustenance from that, and then you're able to transmit that or convert that into something that others can benefit from. Yes. But it's also, I mean, this is kind of a newer idea to me, but it is also creating. You know, it's like just being there in meditation, just being there sitting, is creating this new state of being. Mm -hmm. And it just, it suddenly felt different to me in the last year or so, that this is, we're getting these pockets of this new state of being all over the place. And that's really kind of what's happening in the world. And we do anchor something. We anchor something by allowing them yeah. and by, you know, being, however, we nurture that in, in ourselves and others. So so do you feel like that the world is headed for a much brighter time because there's some new state of being or some age of enlightenment or something dawning and have is there anything in the course in miracles about that that predicts it or describes it there is there's a wonderful line again i can't remember i, I, I said course of miracles it. i meant course of love oh, but either but one there, is, there actually is one in a course in miracles okay. about how 
wish I could remember. But anyway, it's a beautiful quote about how heaven and earth will be as one, basically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think people take that, can take that um, to be the earth will pass away for this combining to happen. But um, with that combined with the course of love, I, I take it that heaven and earth can come together. I do think that these structures that the ego has created, you know, to protect and conceal and deceive and all of that, they're going to have to come down yeah. probably before we get better. But And when you yeah. say structures, you don't just mean in the individual, you mean in the society, economic yeah. structures and, and yeah. political structures and stuff like that. Yes, yeah, so we might, you know, there is certainly no, nothing that says we won't have a harder time before it gets better. Mm. The darkest hour is always before the dawn. So I was going to actually ask you if, if you had any commentary on the p current political scene, but you've just sort of made one. Do you, do you kind of feel like things are always well and wisely put in that, and the way things are going could very well result in the kind of crash and burn and or phoenix-like <laughs> destruction and, and reemergence of, of a better world or something? I think that deception has to come to light mm. you know and the way that we're we've been deceived and are deceiving ourselves and letting ourselves be deceived by the structures that are i mean i think that has to come to light and and i think it is this is a perfect opportunity for that to come to light for, mm. for what is um not kind you know not humane and one of the things that i have seen because I mean, we really are just beginning, my husband and I, beginning to recover from our financial decline that uh, started when I left my job, you know. And we were on the uh, Obamacare plan. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that went up like, uh, it doubled in this last year. And, and right. anyway, but when we first went on that, it was like no one seemed to understand what it felt like not to be able to afford health care. And no one understood how difficult it was made by the program and, and this sort of thing. And it's like, and I don't mean this in a, you know, in any way, like I'm glad this is happening to people. It's just that I believe so many people are beginning to see the effects of this unkindness. This is the way I call it, the unkindness, you know, to, um, leave people without being able to be insured or to cut or, or to have the cost so high they can't be insured or to you know there's so many things that have gone on in the last you know really since the recession even despite you know our Obama years that have made the world harder and harder for people yeah and more people are feeling it and and so the only good I can see in that is that uh, is that we all have a sense of what the poor have been going through for a long time and, mm -hmm. and a greater sense and a more personal, you know, because if, you, if you've never been there, it's really hard to have um, that compassion, like for, uh, for those who need to be seen and heard and, yeah. And, yeah, and um, so. and even some of the poorest people in our country are kind of wealthy by comparison with a yes. couple billion people in the world. <laughs> you know. know, so 
they really mm. and, and we've all heard these statistics how the top 100 wealthiest people in the world possess more wealth than the bottom 80 percent or some such thing you know it's so there's this great inequity and um you know and tremendous suffering while others are, are have so much more than they could possibly need I'm reminded of a, a quote from Martin Luther King at this point, which is the the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm. And um, hopefully, it's I, it's like when you start getting into political topics like this, you know, you're, it gets very controversial and people become very polarized. But I think what you're saying here is really apt, which is important, which is that. And, and it kind of connects with your whole theme about the heart and awakening of the heart, is that you know we really need to feel the suffering of others. I mean that's a, a basic tenet of just about every religion. And if we're really feeling that, how could we possibly allow so much suffering to continue in the world? There's something wrong with this picture, you know, that needs to be remedied. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, we're going to continue talking about what's in a course of love, but uh, some, Marie from Boulder sent in a question. I do want to ask people's questions as they come in. And this is kind of related to something I was asking in the beginning. She said, is the Jesus that you channeled a being separate from yourself or simply an aspect of your own deep mind? How do you know? Well, I would guess it's a, it's a good way to put it, but you know, it would be like having a conversation with each other and there are two voices and even if that voice comes into me there is an awareness of the two voices uh, so yes i i believe jesus is a being um, and that the christ in a course of love language the part of um, Jesus that is universal because of being, you know, that oneness with the Creator is, like I said, that's called Christ consciousness. It's not that we're walking around with Jesus in us, but we're walking around with Christ consciousness mm -hmm. in us. And I just as often call it, you know, a spark of God, uh, that or our divinity. Uh, but yes, I did feel Jesus as a. Um, and that it even, of course, you know, when I'm receiving a course of love, this is stuff I didn't know. Right. There's a lot of stuff I didn't know. I always use the example of the word treatises because I went and looked it up. I thought I knew what it meant, but I wasn't sure. What's a treatise, you know? Um, so uh, it, it was not me as I know myself, for sure. But I've had conversations with Jesus. Um, I had a lot of conversations with Jesus for the first five years after A Course of Love was published. And then he um, told me it was time to start relying on myself and I didn't have as many with him. But he'll pop in now and then, you know, when I'm journaling. Very distinct voice. And I know other people who hear from Jesus and their Jesus is not my Jesus, you know, because we're always different in relationship. This is the thing. It's like you talking to me are different than you talking to your wife. Right. You know, so we're all different in relationship, and that's to be prized, you know, not to be used as a, you know, well, it can't be then because it's different here and different there. No, but union in relationship is a is a huge um, teaching of a person. One comment I just want to make is that, you know, you strike me as being very 
this is my personal editorial opinion here. You strike me as being very sincere and sweet and genuine. I've spoken with some people who are into channeling, both on and off BatGap, who, I don't know, it's like I have a feeling there's a lot of them there, a lot of ego there, which is undoubtedly filtering or altering or coloring whatever it is they're channeling. In fact, I sometimes suspect that they're not channeling anybody. They're just kind of tapping into some level of creativity and within themselves and coming out with a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so I think you know, you're an example of someone whose kind of sweetness and innocence make her a reliable source for this kind of wisdom. It's like I don't get the feeling like you're really in the way you know, of what's, what's coming through. Yes, I really had hoped Jesus was going to inspire me to write something on my own. You know what I mean? It's like that's what I kind of thought, what I hoped it would be. I mean, I wouldn't do anything, but it was like I was hoping, and I was writing during this time, but it was awful. You know, I was trying too hard, and I was writing this awful stuff. And But that was really what I hoped. I had no aspirations to being, you know, a, a channel or a scribe or anything like that. But I do, I do like... Um, being called the first receiver, partially because it also includes everyone else in being receivers. And also, you know, I too, I have met people, you know, um, I, I really didn't like having my work um, lumped with people who would help you find your cat, you know, or, yeah. it, you know, it there there's a reverential um, part to this. Yeah. Yeah, so in other words, somebody who might help you find your cat or help help the police solve a crime or something has its value. Uh, But they're like psychics. They're they're sort of not necessarily picking up on anything profound. They're just sort of picking up on some information which you could get through your ordinary senses if you were in the right place. Yeah, it's like all those things are fine, but they're not the same. You know, they're not the same as this. And to just lump it all, you know, it's sort of like anything that's sort of extra sensory gets sometimes put in this one category. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, that's like saying, put, lumping all ty- all forms of music together, you know, and saying that Act, the, yeah. sex, the sex pistols are the same as Beethoven or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does it sometimes amaze you when you, like, look at this 700 pages and think, holy cow, you know, how, how in the world did all this come out of, uh, through me? <laughs> yes. Yes, it does amaze me. And um, I mean, I think it changed me so much. I mean, I was called to an orientation of solitude afterwards. I felt briefly sort of elated. And then it's actually about um, living in the world again, you know, after you've done something like this, you know, being able to. Um, I understand why people leave, um, and I always kind of had this fantasy, you know, of uh, of a monk's life or something. But I am married, and I love my family, and there, that's that love has informed my spiritual spirituality tremendously too. So I, you know, got the next best thing with this cabin in the woods. But it was very, very. It's hard for me. Like my sensibilities changed. Like I can't go shopping for an afternoon. I shop as quickly as I can. I can, I can't take noise for very long. You mm-hmm. know, it's 
Um, so the effects on me, and I mean, I'm still normal, you know, I mean, I'm st I, mean yeah. I, I talk to myself as ordinary, you know, I'll go, uh, you know, have a drink now and then or something, you know, and I just can't take too much. It's like I, and that's really sort of the feeling was like, it was so much, and it's still so much that I just need all this quiet time to hold it. Sure. Yeah, you became more refined through the process and therefore your taste became more refined and your interests became more refined. And that's a nice way to put it. Yeah, that's the way I, I see I like it. refined. That's, that's lovely. Thank you. Sure, it's like, I don't know, metaphors keep coming to mind, but like if we have a hammer and chisel or something, we can break rock with it. But if, if the chisel is, ref, is refined to the point where it becomes a scalpel, then it's no longer really suited for breaking rocks. You know, it needs to do more delicate tasks. Yes. That's nice. Thank you. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> so what more do you want to tell us about A Course in Love? Uh, if you've, you know, have an opportunity here to let people know a little bit more. Well, I would just kind of, I started on it at the end of learning and, and then kind of dropped it, but I think that's, I mean, I remember one time, you know, somebody say, well, do you mean you never read anymore? You know, what do you mean the end of learning? It's sort of like a, it's the beginning of coming to know. The end of learning is the beginning of coming to know. And it's not about anything specific. And that's the really hard thing. You know, it's sort of like, okay, I, I want, it's about the knowing itself. And that it's a hard thing to talk about, but it's about the knowing itself to begin to trust in your own knowing. This is a really huge thing. And then I absolutely love that Jesus ends on dialogue. So we go from teachers and learners to sharing in unity and to being in dialogue with each other. And this is, in fact, I watched some of your uh, talks and I watched the one where you were talking at Berkeley recently, or mm -hmm. wherever you were talking. Out in Berkeley. And I loved you because you weren't trying to teach me anything. You were sharing who you are, your curiosity, your ideas, you know. So this is sort of... <laughs> you should have seen me 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing then? <laughs> oh, I was teaching. <laughs> and okay. I was talking about stuff that I hadn't experienced, you know, and, and, uh, and you know, being rather proselytizy. And, you know, uh -huh. it was probably a pain in the ass for many people. <laughs> yeah. Okay, there you get it then. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying is I love this move. I yeah. love this move that's being made. And people, of course, will still try, you know, to do teaching and to do things the old way, but I think the more we move to dialogue, you know, it's kind of a time-honored thing to be in communication, but also with this understanding that this is happening to more people in the world, that we're becoming these conduits, the more we share. I just had this wonderful thing happen to me the other day. I was sharing with a, a guy from, there's a, a group in Santa Fe, there's about 60 groups around the country now, um, and I haven't, I've, the ones I've visited, I don't see teaching and learning going on. You know, there'll be somebody who kind of facilitates, but then people, you know, are very um, lovely, lovely about sharing. But I was telling them that what I've been hearing lately is uh, only do what you want to do. 
It's like I'm get, keep getting this guy only do what you want to do, and it's kind of contrary, you know, to to <laughs> to what the most of us love, you know, only do what you want to do. And so I was still sort of marveling over this, and and I have actually been, um, you know, contemplating that because then of course it calls you, what do you want to do? Uh, but he said to me, uh, well, that sounds like A Course in Miracles. There's this chapter in the uh, Manual for Teachers that talks about trust, and I think that's in there. And so I went to it, and I'd forgotten this, that it had, it kind of lays out this, like you were talking about some of the Eastern traditions, they lay this things out. And when you get to this certain point, it says, and now the teacher of God does what he wants to do. It's as simple as that. And I was like, oh my gosh. You know, so these things are always kind of combining, but that sharing, you know, when I share with people, they almost always share with me something that will lead me to something else, you know, or something that I need to hear in that moment. So I really am excited about dialogue and and always excited about things that remind me how much I loved A Course in Miracles and that they are kind of of one piece. I think when people, in fact, it's really wonderful now, there are some groups that are combining. They'll ha- take passages of A Course in Miracles and passages of A Course of Love and have that at their, as their focus. And it's incredible how much differently people begin to hear A Course in Miracles when it's combined with A Course of Love. So. Is there a certain faction of Course in Miracles people who see you as some kind of a renegade? Yes. <laughs> yes, there is. Yeah. And uh, usually it's kind of fun that I usually get warning, you know, like somebody would say, well, don't read this uh, review on Amazon or uh, some of these people who like to um, criticize will email a lot of people. And so somebody will say, don't read this from so-and-so because... It'll hurt your feelings or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that it would hurt my feelings, but you know, I'd rather not read them. Yeah. So people are kind that way to do that. Um, But I'm really, really excited that A Course in Miracles community is beginning to accept A Course of Love because this is clearly an audience that Jesus intended. You know, he said, I prepared them. I prepared them with A Course in Miracles. And and now, you know, so I I don't know how much, you know, public speaking and that kind of thing I do, but I will be going to the... um, Course in Miracles conference in this time next year. And I will do everything I can to be sure that that we can bring, I mean, I can't do everything, of course. I can't change people's minds, but I will do what I can uh, on that end. Uh, And I am very, um, I'll wait (laughs) until you ask me. (laughs) Well, I I was wondering, you know, in the beginning we were talking about how Adyashanti talks about head, heart, and gut realizations, and there are other parallels to that in other spiritual teachings. And I was wondering whether you think there might be a, just as A Course in Love is sort of a sequel to A Course in Miracles, I was wondering whether you think there might be another whole thing that might come out either through you or somebody else that would take it a major step further. I certainly wouldn't wouldn't, uh, be surprised. I think we're always we're always growing. We're always evolving into further realizations. 
Yes. Yeah, so I'm glad you said that because I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this end of learning thing. Um, mm. And, you know, I, I feel that I'm always growing and evolving into further realizations, as you just phrased it. And so in that sense, I feel like I'm, there's no end to learning. But I guess when you say end to learning, you, you're sort of meaning end in the sense of taking stuff from authorities that we're not necessarily experiencing ourselves and that we, that we really need to put an end to that kind of uh, dynamic and, and just sort of really know things in our hearts directly and cognitively, or I mean, you know, sort of viscerally, directly, experientially. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, that was very good phrasing. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's somebody who sent in a question, Michael Kantos. Um, he said, and this could perhaps be thought of in a more broad way. He said, any advice for those of us looking forward to meeting with you in Chestnut Hill, Philadelphia on February 25th? Uh, thank you, Michael, Center for Contempt contemporary mysticism and we can broaden that out to say people all over the world who are listening to this who may or may not end up meeting with you any advice for them I have begun to you know I, I really didn't before because of the groups you know that were eager to form but I've begun to to say to people why don't you just read it once? Just read it straight through without, you know, applying, without, you know, going to a group, without applying any thought or effort or anything. Just let it enter you. Just let it wash over you. And so, and I mean, of course, you can do that anytime. It doesn't mean that you have to do that the first time, but if you've already read it, you might read it the second time. You know, if you've read it in a group, you might read it the second time, just reading it through and letting it have this, begin to have this flow that pulls you in. Um, but that was one thing I was I was about to say when I said, oh, I'll let you ask me. Um, mm -hmm. I am very thrilled about, this is my last uh, presentation this year is going to be in Philadelphia at the Center, Center for Contemporary Mysticism. So one day I'll be um, speaking with Course of Love people and I also am going to do, uh, I get to do an hour on, you know, the more broader topic of mysticism and it's the first time that I've been uh, had the opportunity to do that so I'm looking forward to both of those very much. Hmm. What kind of things are you going to say about mysticism? <laughs> uh, well I'm going to talk about all the things that drew me to mystery you know I don't I, I always try to speak of things in a way that lets everybody else know that probably they have already felt these mystical tendencies in themselves because it feels to me like you know it seems too hard and I know you know as a young person entering spirituality um, you know I couldn't afford to go to teachings and you know all of that and probably why like I already said my books are my friends but um, I think we're all natural mystics or born mystics and we probably have memories of mystical experiences and if we can bring those forward in ourselves, we can begin to have that sense of we are, you know, we're not we're not different, you know. There isn't a, a separate category of people necessarily called uh, mystics. So, mm. 
It's funny because when you were younger, you used to love to read mystery novels, and you wanted to be a writer of mystery novels, and you ended up doing this, and, and in a way, <laughs> you're writing about mystery, you know? And, I am, uh, But yes. it, it, it just has this whole spiritual orientation now. A very different, and, and you know why? I, the main reason I wanted to, <laughs> to write mysteries was because I knew even then I never wanted to promote myself. You know, it's like I wanted to be this famous writer, but I didn't want to you know, have to be selling myself all the time. And so I thought these, there were all these series mysteries at the time. So I thought if I started a series mystery, there'd just be people there waiting for my next book. Yeah. And I'd just have to write. I wouldn't have to do anything else. Yeah. <laughs> so you said that this, this presentation you're going to give in Philadelphia is your last one of the year, but it's only February. You're not going to give any more all year? Yes, I was at um, the Course in Miracles conference in Vegas in April this year, mm -hmm. and I've been traveling. This year, meaning last year. Yeah, last year, right. so 16. And I decided I would give it a year mm -hmm. by this trying a more public life. And so I visited with a lot of groups and, and that kind of thing. And so this will be my final one, and I'm going to take a pause. Whether it'll end up being a whole year, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but I am going to take a little pause and... Uh, because, you know, the whole message of A Course of Love is you have to be who you are. Yeah. You know, you have to be who you are. And so when I get too busy, I feel like I lose a part of myself. And so I'm going to give myself some time and just kind of feel into what the next things will be. You know what you might enjoy is rather than sort of flying all over, giving a talk here and a talk there. You might enjoy doing a retreat every now and then where you're just in a really beautiful retreat kind of setting and people come there and you spend a whole weekend with them where everybody can really settle in. Yes. You know, I, I haven't even really you know, thought about these things, different ways that this could be done. And so mm -hmm. I'll take some time and do that. And I know a lot of people who um, I'm sure will give me some good ideas. And yeah. You know, uh, another thing is that a bunch, some, some friends of mine do these kind of webinars using Zoom, which is a certain kind of software, mm -hmm. and they have, you know, 20, 30 participants who are scattered around the world, and they have a nice little thing for an hour or two with these people and in the comfort of their living room, just as you're sitting now. So that, that kind of thing would also be a way of connecting with people without having to race around. Well, that's one of the things that... Um you know, I've done with this interview with you, which is arguably my, um, this is my greatest exposure. So I really appreciate that, that I could do that from the comfort of my home. But I bought about three mics and all these different things to get it, you know, set up right, to get what yeah. worked for me. Because this is, I do realize this is one way I could share that might be more comfortable. Yeah. Well, hopefully and reach a larger audience, too. You know, you can talk to people all over the world, which is amazing. Yeah, I know. It's neat, isn't it? We <laughs> have many translations. The French translation is done now of the whole book, first one of the whole book. And we have a very active um, group beginning the Spanish translation. Oh, great. Or it's actually, it's almost, it's done. The first round of it is done. So they're refining it now and getting ready to publish. It's being translated into you know, Norwegian and Swedish and... I'm going to forget something, and let's see, uh, <laughs> Dutch and Dutch. Japanese. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Here's a question for you, just to jump back into the fray here for a second. Does Jesus, or do the, does the Course of Love, 
discuss reincarnation at all. And the, the reason for that is I have a question about it that somebody sent in, but I wonder if that's even on your, in your lexicon. It's really not. Okay. It would probably... Uh, I have never really been interested in it. It's not in A Course of Love, so I don't really have much to say. You could probably answer it better than I. But in terms of A Course of Love, no, it doesn't say anything specifically about reincarnation. Uh-huh. Okay, the reason I asked someone from France sent in a question about whether as souls we kind of evolve up through various species to higher and higher expressions, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, eventually become enlightened beings, but we don't need to discuss that if it's not really your bailiwick. Okay. Yeah. Alrighty, well, I, ho- I hope you've been enjoying this. I have. Any final thoughts you want to express? They don't even have to be final if we get come up with more ideas, but I don't want to just belabor this. But if, if you have something you really haven't had a chance to say that you want to leave people with or you want to be sure to get in? You know, I I don't know what I've said. <laughs> you know, that happens to me too, you know. It's, yeah. like I, I, it's like, well, gee, I don't know what I've talked about, so I'm probably better to quit while well, I'm ahead. Well, here, without but... resorting to memory, just yeah. intuitively, what do you feel moved to say by way of uh, a wrap-up point. Oh, just to encourage everyone to look at their lives with the eyes of their heart and to know that you have a greater knowing probably than you allow yourself to get in touch with and let yourself begin to get in touch with that. And then let it expand into the world. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad I asked you to do that. That was nice. Okay, so let me just make a couple of wrap-up points. I've been speaking with Mari Perone, and as always, I'll create a page on batgap.com that will link to her website and her book and um, anything else she wants me to put there. And you'll be able to get in touch with her and, and uh, so on. This... Uh, interview is part of an ongoing series which has been going on for about seven years now and which I hope will continue for many years to come. Um, if you would like to stay in touch, uh, go to batgap.com and you can sign up to be notified by email each time there's a new one. And also you'll see there's a at a glance menu. If you, if you click on that, you'll kind of see a, a quick summary of everything that you'll find on the site. Uh, things such as signing up to for the audio podcast and everything like that. So so go to batgap.com. Um, next week I'll be speaking with someone named Nicola Amadora, and the week after that, Dwayne Elgin, and on and on. <laughs> it's, really a, it's really a joy getting to know these people each week and, and talking to them. I, I love it, and I, I hope all of you are enjoying it too. So thanks, Mari. Well, thank you. And can I please my uh, publisher by telling people that they can find the book? Yes, please. Yes. Um, It's available, of course, on Amazon, but at bookstores, too. If you can't find it there, ask them. You have a copy on hold up there? And I'll be linking to the Amazon page uh, where your book can be purchased also. I'll be linking to that from your BatGap page. There it is. There that is? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, there is... Now, Rick uh, benefited from this, and I didn't even think of it because it's so new, I'd kind of forgotten. That was a great little thing, yeah. It's a resource. Yeah. Um, It's an overview, written by somebody else, but it's a nice little synopsis. It's just uh, 
it, I think also for people who read it and would like to introduce it to a friend, this would be uh -huh. very nice. Good place to start. Um, the website, can I tell them? Yes, yeah, anything, sure. There's two websites, www.acourseoflove.org mm -hmm. and also www.centerforacourseoflove.org mm -hmm. and there's different things on, on each of them. I would hope you, you might visit both. I do a blog. Um, there's also on the center site, there's a concordance that can help you find and a search facility, which is what I use more than the concordance. If I want to follow a theme like, you know, the well of spirit, I can go in there and tell them what well of spirit and and find all the references to that. So I think that's something people really love to hear about. And then I am going to be in Philadelphia. You can find that out on the events page of uh, Course of Love's website, and that will be February the 25th and 26th. Good. And I'll link to these websites from your page on batgap.com in case somebody's listening to this while they're driving or something. They, they can't really stop and write that down. But I'll just go to batgap.com and you'll see Mari's page. And if you're listening to this three years from now, the page will be you know buried under many other interviews. But you can always do a search in the search box. And we also have a, like an alphabetical index of all the guests. And you can easily find her page and go to her websites and her link to her book and all that stuff. All right, well, thanks, Mari. I really appreciated it. Great getting to know you. Same here. I heard great things about you, too. It was like, oh, Rich and Irene Archer. They're, you know. <laughs> <laughs> great. All right, well, thanks. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. We'll see you next week. Absolutely. Thank you. You're welcome. To everyone. Sure.